this is. Uh, awesome location, uh, kind of. For me, it symbolizes just kind of what this community is. It's something that's somewhat low-key, um, but yet it's so infused with uh, a people's desire to truly be here. You know, this is a, what I love most about this community. It's not just a matter of repetition, I don't believe, for all of us. It's a, a true desire to kind of pull together and figure out what this life is all about. Um, and before we launch into this new series that we're going to be doing, um, as the year rolls on, um, I kind of want to take a moment to let Becca come up and um, if you don't mind, um, and share something. Becca and Tim moved here back in May, and they joined our church maybe um, three or four months ago. Um, and they're a perfect example of people who understand that the church is not somewhere where you come and be served, but rather you come in order to see what God wants to use in you and your talents through the church. Tim plays on keys, and Becca's been um, kind of pursuing her her own desire to bring justice um, God's justice to the orphans, um, and we got a chance to be a part of that in December, um, and she just kind of wants to share a little bit more of that. If you want the mic. I don't really. Okay. <laughs> but I just wanted to thank you guys so much. We were able Awesome. Thanks, Becca. Sweet. And we, uh, Chris already mentioned this, we are a fully volunteer-run community. And if you have ideas about how God could use you and your giftedness and your talents, which is fully unique to you, um, come and talk to me, talk to Becca, talk to Josh, Chris, anybody you see up here. um, And just let us know how we can support you financially um, or more so just with our collective body. Sweet. Um, So we're going to be launching off... um, in January and then throughout February in a whole different type of series. In the fall, we were looking more at what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And it was very much a discipleship-focused series. But now we're going to be moving a little bit in a different direction and more towards an open questioning of why do we believe what we believe. Uh, If you ever go to church, if you spend any time in church at all, the thing that's probably teached on the least amount is why we can trust the Bible. Right? It's just assumed that we can trust the Bible and we look into it and we dig into it, but very rarely do we ever stop and pull back and say, man, why can we even trust this book that we're supposed to base our entire life on? And so we're going to spend the next four weeks, myself, Drew, and Nick, and we're going to take just little slices of that pie and try to present to you with the hopes that you will then go deeper the evidence for the Bible. Um, and it's such a huge topic. It literally, if you're willing to look at it from an outside perspective, Christians, millions and millions of us all over the world, base our entire lives off of the fact that this is truly God's word. 
And if the evidence doesn't line up behind it, then as Paul says, we are the most foolish among all men. You know, so with that in mind, if you wouldn't mind um, just kind of entering into prayer with me, um, I just uh, it's too big of a topic for me to take on. God, um, I humbly approach you with this, and uh, I believe that you're real from my own experience. Um, and uh, if that's true, I ask that you would work your work your works through me. Um, allow me to speak what you want me to speak. Allow people to hear what, what you want them to hear. Uh, I trust you. I really do. Your name, amen. Um, and one other thing, and I haven't said this for a while, but we are so much like little junior high kids, you know, in adult bodies running around living adult lives, but our attention span is that of like a 12 or 13-year-old boy going through puberty, right? And what I'm going to lay out before you is just so much stuff. The goal should be anytime you sit before a pastor is to take one thing home. Just try to lock onto one thing that the Spirit is trying to move in your mind. Don't try to take it all and just grab one thing, um, and you'll have plenty to do. Okay, so before we get into um, the evidence that I'm going to present for you today, I want to kind of lay some ground rules for our approach to asking these questions. And there's five different things that I've kind of come up to. First one, um, we need to realize that the questions that the Bible and other sacred texts, science and philosophy answer are crucial to life and they're sought by everyone. So every single person in the world answers these questions, whether they know it or not, and their whole life is determined by them. Um, We got four different ones that we're looking at. Origin, that's where we come from. Morality, meaning, and destiny. So morality is how we determine right and wrong. Meaning is your purpose in life. And destiny is what happens when we die. Um, You can put different names on these if you want, but these are just like general categories. Um, And under these, how you answer this question, there flows just endless other questions that determine how you live your life. And let me give you some examples of how this rolls out. So in terms of origin, where we come from, if you're an atheist or you believe that science has it all, um, you believe that we exist by mere chance, a byproduct of a random explosion and millions of years of evolution, and there's nothing unique within an individual. We are simply a collection of random cells that will be quickly displaced after our death. Sounds kind of morbid, kind of, uh, it's a bummer to put it that way, but that, that's what atheism and science teaches. And it's out of that mindset, out of that worldview, that it's very easy to see abortion as an acceptable practice. It's just a collection of cells, doesn't even breathe yet. It's a matter of survival of the fittest and what is most important for my life, the survival of my, most, my well-being is that this child is gone. There's no soul. There's nothing to make me attached to this individual. Bigotry. The example that one race is better than another race. Survival of the fittest, right? Even capitalism could be seen as a byproduct of this mindset. I will charge as much as I think I can charge. I don't care if it's reasonable or not. If people will pay it, therefore it's an okay practice. You know, and if you're an atheist or if you believe that science is the way, it might sound a little harsh to you, but that's only because you don't fully believe your belief systems. If you had total faith in what you believed, there wouldn't, you wouldn't have any problem seeing what I'm saying. Christianity, on the other hand, says that we are designed in the image of a loving and all-powerful creator and given the unique and ineffable quality of a soul. Therefore, how we treat one another 
is very important because every human life has meaning and it's precious. All right, morality. We're hitting these real fast. These are massive topics. Morality, the notion of right versus wrong. Atheism, without a lawgiver, there is no law. If we're just primates running around in the jungle, right, then whatever we do in the moment is good for us because there is no governing principles other than the fact that I am to survive and I am to continue going. You know, relativism has been born out of that. What is good for you is good for you, and what is good for me is good for me. Right? There's no big eye in the sky that can teach us how to live. Christianity, on the other hand, says if there is a creator, then there must be a best way to live. God is the source of that truth. The one who created us knows the best way for us to live. We move on to meaning. What is the meaning of our life? What is our purpose here in the limited amount of time that we have? Humanism, which is kind of what our cultures practice today, that humanity is the center of all that we know. I exist for my own enjoyment and glorification. Right? If there's nothing beyond what we know right here and now, why would I not just live for what feels best to me here and now? And out of that, we can see a whole byproduct of destructive uh, consequences that roll out. You know, on my... I have story after story in my own life, I'm sure some of you do as well, that when you live for your own enjoyment, that there is no other purpose besides feeling good in the moment, your life testifies that there's something wrong with that decision-making process. Christianity, on the other hand, says, I exist to know the God who created me and to bring him glory. My life is not my own. I am to surrender my life for a greater purpose that only the creator knows. And then finally, destiny. Uh, the fact that what happens after we die, and obviously nobody knows, right? Nobody that has been on the other side has really come back with any hard evidence other than stories and dreams. Um, different mindsets you can have. Jehovah's Witness believe that 144,000 will be chosen. Think about that. 144,000 out of the billions and billions and billions of people that live on earth. And think about the fear that you would be living under with that mindset how you need to work and work and work and work to be amongst one of the chosen and how that would cause your whole decision-making process to play out. Christianity, on the other hand, believes that anybody who is willing to say, I am a sinner, that I don't know the best way to live, but God does, and Jesus is my way, then they go to eternal life with him. It's an open-ended invitation as long as you're willing to be humble. And in that, there's this peace and security to just be flawed and to be okay with that and to just strive for more. All right, so does that make sense? And every pursuit, whether it be any other religion that you look at or philosophy or science, they're all aiming to answer those four questions. And it's of utter importance that we figure out our own answers to those questions. All right, the second thing, due to our limited understanding and perspective, We'll never fully answer those questions. It's kind of a misnomer, but it's true. Anything that claims that they can offer you ultimate security in these answers is a lie. Even the Bible itself will bring you to a point with reason that faith makes sense, but it always requires that there's a leap of faith, to use the cliche. And it's important that we know this. You know, even science, which I believe we've been fooled through elementary school and so and and high school, um, to believe that hi- that science itself contains the ultimate truth. 
um, give you two examples, one completely pointless and the second one um, pretty serious. Yawning appears to be ubiquitous within the animal kingdom, according to Smithsonian Magazine. But despite such a widespread feature, scientists still can't explain why yawning happens or, for why, so, or why for social animals like humans and their closest relatives, it's contagious. Science can't even explain to you why you yawn. You know, and you go to the other side of the spectrum. To believe that there was an explosion, the Big Bang, that created all that we know requires a huge leap of faith. You don't hear that. In order to believe that science has absolute truth, you must have faith that science is true. Humanism, again, the fact that we believe that humanity is the center of all that we have, um, it says that ultimate truth lies within my perception that I can figure out what ultimate truth is. That requires more faith than I would say Christianity requires because you're living life based on such a limited perspective. You have 70 years at most, 70 to 100 years at most in this life, and you think that in that time frame you can figure out the most perfect way for you to live? That's a faith bordering on stupidity in my opinion. All right, number three. Even though we can't fully come to understand the answers, we must, however, determine which source provides us with the most viable evidence. Which one proves to be most true? This is of far too much importance to take lightly. It's like we looked at, and don't take my word for it, but those, how you answer those four questions that we first looked at determines everything that you know about your life and how you make those choices. And so we can't just say, you know what, I believe this because my parents believe this. Or I believe this because I Googled it on, internet, on the internet and some guy came up on a YouTube video and it sounded really convincing in like a three-minute period of time and I don't really want to put any more than three minutes of my time into it, so I'm just going to go with what he says and remember this one quote and tell people about that, right? Our whole lives and those around us and then our culture and our society stem out of how we make this choice. You know, and so often we, we separate reason and faith, don't we? we? They seem to be opposite to one another, but that is such a lie. They are not contrary to one another. They, they come alongside of each other like a bi-wing plane. You need reason and you need faith in order to truly figure out what this life is. They complement one another. You know, if you don't know what you believe, reason can bring you to a point where then you can make a justifiable decision about what to believe. And if you know what you believe, then reason can either support or deny what you already believe. That makes sense? This is far different than any other sermon that I will ever give. This is so weird for me. And any of you that have heard me teach, I'm not going to use a single Bible verse tonight, which is like the hardest thing for me to do. You know, I usually just want to over-inundate you with everything, but... We need to be willing to use our intellect. God gave us these big, beautiful brains, and we very rarely use them in the Christian circle. We just go off this hyped-up emotion of the music, listen to somebody get us even more fired up, and go out and forget all about it instead of really engaging what we have. All right, number four, we need to be willing to continually re-examine the evidence with an open mind. The Bible is a major pillar of Christian faith, and if it's so easily shaken by scrutiny... Maybe it's not worth believing in. You ever think about that? So often people are afraid to question or examine the proof of their faith. And I'm thinking, man, if you're afraid that your faith is going to crumble, then why do you have faith that your whole life is based on? Right? And I'm not saying doubt your faith. I'm saying examine the evidence that 
backs up your faith. Now, maybe you don't have faith in God and Christianity. Maybe you have a lack of faith in yourself. Maybe you've tried to figure out life for yourself for so long and you continually stumble and continually stumble and continually stumble. That right there, that experience, that's what drives you into a deeper sense of true faith. Or those who have experienced God in very real ways and there's no way that I could ever convince you otherwise that he is real. That's what you got to hang on to. But then you grab the reason and the knowledge and you see, does it really back it up? All right, number five, and then we'll get into some more specific stuff. The Bible and its truth are exclusive. As we roll down this series, we must remember the Bible and its truth are exclusive. That's according to the Bible. You can't take a little bit of Taoism, a little bit of Hinduism, a little bit of the Bible, and a little bit of just like, we'll see what happens. The Bible's claims that it makes are so drastic that it is in no way inclusive. It's either the Bible or nothing at all. And our culture has forgotten that. It's not a book of, on morality. It's a book about how man messed up and God has worked to redeem man all the way through. Very, very big difference. It's not a list of right and wrongs. It's a list of a very real creator God coming into humanity's world and redeeming it. So you can't have one or the other. You can't have one and then so many others. It's one or the other. Okay. So some ground rules. Now I want to just take a little bit of time and uh, look at um, one piece of the evidence that I believe supports the Bible. And obviously I'm coming from a skewed perspective. Um, I'm not going to be laying out a completely non-biased argument. Um, God's affected my life in innumerable ways and my faith is strong. And so what I'm showing you is evidence for the Bible being the very true word of God. Um, What I want to look at tonight is the fact that Christianity is a historical faith. It's a historical faith. And that's quite unique when it comes to religions. Um, It's more like science. It it says that, it claims that the events that it describes took place in a real time and a real place. Now why that's important is because it means we're not dealing with myth and legend. When people say, oh, the Bible is just a myth, the Bible is just all these legends, what the Bible claims is that it's historically recorded events. It's like a historian was there witnessing these events, and he wrote it down to pass on the information. The same way that we believe Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, told us all about the Roman Empire, and we believe that everything that happened that he said was true. The Bible is the same type of document. You know, there's some Psalms and other things that aren't, but majority of it is historical, historically recorded events. Now, why this is important is because then we can look at it and say, Did, do we have evidence to show that the events that the eyewitness account said happened really happened? That makes sense? If, they, if it's eyewitness accounts that saw this, wrote it down, there should be evidence that backs up that these events truly happened, evidence outside of just this single text that we have. Um, and this is of monumental importance. If we can prove that these events didn't happen, then the whole premise of the Bible crumbles. You know, a guy named Ravi Zacharias, who's a big apologetist, says, on this peg hangs just about everything a Christian believes. Now, for the sake of our time um, and logic, you'll see, I'm just going to focus on the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, And the reason for that, the rest of the New Testament, after the Gospels, stems out of the life of Jesus. The Old Testament 
points to Jesus, and Jesus himself quotes about every book in the Old Testament, all but two. So if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then everything he said about the, the 40, 38 books in the um, Old Testament, you have to believe that they're true. The life and saying of Jesus is the crux of the entire compilation. By examining the validity of the Gospels, one can very quickly either rule out the rest of the Bible or gain a sizable amount of proof for its validity. Now, not to just assume that we all you know, grew up in Sunday school, uh, the Gospels describe the teachings, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. They're written by two eyewitnesses. Matthew, also known as Levi, he was a tax collector, um, called out by Jesus, followed him. And then John, who the one that Jesus loves, one of his closest, uh, he was in the top three in Jesus' circle. They wrote two Gospels. And then two others are written by people who had direct access to eyewitnesses. Luke, he was a physician, like a historian at that time, and he was going around interviewing people like Mary and the disciples and saying, hey, what really happened here? You know, and the other one, Mark, he was the disciple of Peter. Peter was like one of Jesus' top three. Um, so these are individuals that were either there when Jesus was doing what he was doing or they had direct access to people who were. Who were. So their story, their account, had to either be truth or blatant lie. There's no in-between. Either they're telling the truth of what happened or it's an utter and complete lie. Um, so I want to kind of examine that with two different pieces of evidence. Was it truth or was it a blatant lie? And the first one, I want to use logic. Uh, yes, logic and faith go together so well. Um, and it, this is one that doesn't require you to have a master's or a doctorate or anything. It just requires you to have a little bit of common sense. And I know we all have that. And so I want to look at the progression of Christianity. Now, think about this. Those of you that know the story, great. If not, just follow along with me. Jesus is crucified. At that moment, his disciples scatter like mercury. Right? They just take off. They deny him left and right. They want nothing to do with him to the point where they're actually hiding, scared behind locked doors. Then the gospel accounts claim that Jesus rises from the dead. Right? Dead and gone three days, and then all of a sudden, poof, he's given life back. And then meets with his disciples, hangs out with them for about 40 days, and then he's brought up into heaven, which is what's called the ascension. Now, after this, the disciples, the 11 of them, and then the new one that they brought in because Judas was gone, they began openly proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was killed for saying that he was the Messiah. Because of this, they are persecuted by the Jews. You know, and this included anything from being ostracized from your family Imagine standing up against what your family and your culture had always believed for thousands of years, right? They no longer had the friends and the family and the ties to straight up martyrdom. Said that all 12 except for John, according to Christian tradition, were martyred. They were killed. During this time, Christianity goes viral um, and spreads like wildfire through the Roman Empire. Just takes off. Due to this and a crazy emperor named Nero, heavy persecution by the Romans began. And this is such heavy persecution that Christians are being literally flayed, right? Skin peeled off, staked up, lit, lit on fire, fed to the lions, having lamb skin sewn to them, right? Thrown into the wild animals. Just torturous, barbarous activity. Right? This is the progression of Christianity up through the first 30 years after Jesus dies. Now, what's wild, if you can follow me, 
Logically, people don't voluntarily stand up against cultural norms to the point of torturous death unless they're convinced of truth. Think about that. Maybe one of them would have been willing to die for this lie that they had all kind of concocted. But all 11 out of the 12 disciples are willing to go to a torturous death because of a lie that they've been telling? It just doesn't make logical sense. Think about yourself in that situation or any people you know. You don't stand up for a lie to that extent. You know, people argue, well, they were just turning themselves into these demigods and creating this cult following. But if you look at the the gospel that they were preaching, it had nothing to do with self-aggrandizement. It was all about humility. It was all about the fact that they were taking low level of view of themselves to proclaim the glory of God. So they weren't getting anything out of it. You know, the second piece of logic you got to look at The opponents of Christianity, specifically the Jewish leaders, the ones that killed Jesus, could have instantly squelched the Christian movement by producing a body. Produce a body, the whole thing's done, right? Everything depended upon his, the fact that he was resurrected from the dead. There was thousands of people that wanted Jesus, wanted Christianity to just go away, but they were never able to produce a body. Two logical progressions of thought that got to make you say, hmm, maybe they were telling the truth after all. All right. The second thing I want to look at is something called historical validity of the text. Same thing, truth or blatant lie. Um, Are the words we have in the Bible the actual words that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote, or have they been changed over time? Right, that's, the big, that's, that's one of the arguments that they'll say, well, the Bible is so old, 2,000 years ago. How do we know that we have the actual words that they wrote? You know, over those thousands of years, it could have very easily been changed. Um, This is where we get into the science of ancient manuscripts. Um, Not a very appealing science to most people, um, but uh, interesting for our pursuit nonetheless. Um, So it's the idea that we dig in and we find the oldest possible manuscripts or writings that we have to see if they correspond with what we know. According to a guy named Dr. William Lane Craig, the crucial gap is not between the evidence and today, but rather between the evidence and the events it's describing. So yes, we're 2,000 um, whatever years away from Jesus' life, but what really matters is how close can we get to his actual life with a physical document that talks about it. Um, you know, there's a handout there that I gave you, the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, I believe. Maybe I didn't get it. I didn't give you, there's not a handout with the Dead Sea Scrolls, but you should go Google the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, 1948 blew the whole idea that we had of the validity of the Old Testament totally off the map. Um, they found a bunch of parchments and, scra- and scraps of paper in these pots. Uh, Shepherd was out, threw a rock into a cave, heard a shatter, did it again, and they came upon thousands and thousands and thousands of documents in these sealed jars. And through that, it's totally revolutionized the validity of the Old Testament. Um, But in the last seven years, since 2008, since the economic downturn that affected, you know, the world all over, we've seen huge recent discoveries in newer manuscripts. Um, It's it's neat how this all comes together, but there's a man that used to be a youth pastor at Rimrock named Todd Hillard, and he's now um, a dealer of antiquities, biblical antiquities, kind of like Indiana Jones, um, much less cool, really. But um, 
He is, he is connected with a guy named Dr. Scott Carroll, and he's one of the foremost experts on biblical manuscripts. And he said that due to the economic depression in 2008, people started selling things that had been passed down generation to generation to generation to generation. And because of that, we've been suddenly all of these old manuscripts are coming to light. And they've also discovered that in mummy wrappings, there's scripture. Now think about this. When you're, in, when you're in elementary school and you're making paper mache, what do you use to wrap, to cover in glue and put around the balloon? Newspaper. They found that they were doing the exact same thing. Whatever was close by, they would just put on top of these dead people and turn into mummies. And they found that a lot of those things were old manuscripts of the life of Jesus, of the Gospels, that had made their way down into Africa. And there's a doctor here, just again, this is so crazy how this happens, that a professor here at Tech named Christian Widner has discovered a way to remove the information without destroying the mummies through a 3D CAT scan technology. So they're starting to find more and more of these documents that push us closer and closer to the original. All right, so stuff that they found, I'll just give you two examples. One is the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, circa 140 AD. They believe that all the Gospels were written about 60 AD. John was written about 90 AD. So we're within 80 years of Matthew and Luke. Gospel of Mark, they believe that they just found one that's late first century. So maybe within 30 or 40 years of the original document. You know, and they look like this. This is a Galatians 5, um, 1 through 15. Go ahead and go to the one you are just at, Michael. The, the parchment, the brown, the picture. Um, so they're finding stuff like this, and they're able to get in there and translate and figure out what they all are. Um, and you may be asking, what's, what's the big deal? The thing is, what they've done is they've found so many of these documents, they're able to then look at what we have now in our actual Bibles and compare the two. And they're coming off almost spot-on accurate, like 99%. So it means that what we have now is accurate down to within almost a generation of the original writings of these eyewitnesses. And you may say, man, that's 30, 40 years, or even 100 years. That's a huge amount of time. But what you got to think about is how does this compare to other ancient documents that we take for granted as if they're true? So Tacitus, I mentioned him earlier. He was around, and he wrote some stuff in like, 116 AD about the Roman Empire and most of what we know about the Roman Empire comes from his writings we have one manuscript that was written in 850 AD so that's 700 years apart one manuscript and we take that as utter fact Josephus he was a historian Jewish historian in the time of Christ we have nine manuscripts and they're all from the 10th 11th and 12th century so a thousand years from the actual writing. And we say, this is fact. This hasn't been changed. Homer's Iliad, which is like the biggest one, it was considered like the Greek Bible at the time. There's 650 manuscripts, and they're from the second and third century, which is about 800 years apart from the original writing, so a lot. Now you compare that to the New Testament, we have over 5,000 manuscripts that back up the validity of what we have within almost a generation of the original events. According to the same doctor that I quoted earlier, records of the life of Jesus were written down within the first generation after those events while the eyewitnesses were still alive and people who had firsthand contact with people who lived life with Jesus. 
We have better sources of the life of Jesus than we do the major figures of antiquity. And just one other thing, since I just have a tad bit of time, archaeology is another huge support of Christianity, and not going to get into it. One, I have no idea really anything about archaeology, and two, just don't have the time. There is no question that the credibility of the New Testament is enhanced through, through archaeology. Dr. John McRae, renowned archaeologist, another one from Australia. Those who know the facts now recognize that the New Testament must be accepted as a remarkably accurate source book. I'll give you a little bit of comparison. With the Book of Mormon, trying to, which took place, right, jo, Joseph Smith said that he had a revelation back in like 1700s where an angel came to him and gave him a tablet and then Mormonism was founded out of this. So we're talking like 300 years, not even, within the same continent that we live. Um, there is no direct connection between the archaeology of the New World and the subject matter of the Book of Mormons, according to the Smithsonian Institute. In other words, no Book of Mormon cities have ever been located. No Book of Mormon person, place, nation, or name have ever been found. No Book of Mormon artifact. No Book of Mormon scriptures. No Book of Mormon inscriptions. Nothing which demonstrates the Book of Mormon is anything other than myth or an invention has ever been found. But then you look at Christianity, where according to another archaeologist, there hasn't been a single piece of archaeological evidence brought about that dismisses the facts of the Bible. Okay, so maybe that was interesting, maybe not. Um, but the big question comes out, so what? what does, why does any of this matter? You know, and hopefully at the end of each of our, these are more like lectures, in any of our lectures um, over the month, we'll kind of unpack this for us, you know? Because I believe, and I agree with you, that logical progression in the study of ancient manuscripts and archaeology doesn't prove that Jesus is God. It doesn't prove that there is a God. It doesn't prove that the Bible is a creator-inspired text to humanity. It does none of those things. However, by looking at this evidence, one is forced to wrestle with the strong evidence pointing to the Bible being accurate in its historical telling of events. Now that means we must come face to face with what it means for a man claiming to be the son of God to be killed and then rise from the dead. For a man to perform incredible acts of healing and to have control over natural forces and to then even have control over death itself. We can't just dismiss the Bible as this book of myths that I don't even need to think about. The reality of the evidence states that we must wrestle with the fact that Jesus for all extensive purposes, seems to have been who he said he was and performed the miracles that he said he performed and then rise from the dead. Yeah, that, that's just it. With that, you know, you combined a whole slew of countercultural teachings. There's a whole lot to ponder. Because if he was the son of God and he told us to live a certain way, man, maybe we should start taking what he's saying a little bit more seriously. And if you got any questions about this, if this sparked, you know, a whole bunch of controversy within your own belief system, come and talk to me, talk to Mark, talk to Chad, guys that have been digging into this for a while. But please don't leave here just settled to believe what you believe out of ignorance. 
leave here with a desire to figure out why you really believe what you believe is true. You guys want to come up? I'll close us in prayer to kind of center us on what this is all about. God, you know, if you are real, if, if the evidence that I just kind of expounded upon truly points to your existence, I ask that you would work within our minds and in our hearts to confirm what these dry facts, you know, are saying. I ask that you would, you would prick us at the deepest spot possible to kind of point out why we hold on to our doubts and why we, you know, are so full of scrutiny and criticism towards the things of faith. Um, God, I ask that you would, you would just continue to show up in people's lives and, and point them to what is really true. Amen.